Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel. We're looking at chapter 3. I think it's um, two, around page 212, 213, something like that. In your uh, pew Bible there, if you're using that. <clears throat> I've been fighting this chest crud mess here for about three days, so... It's not because I'm a jerk, which some of you may say amen to, that I don't give you a holy hug or kiss today, okay? So I'm just, it's for your own well-being that I may keep my distance. <clears throat> so, first, champ, first Samuel, chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that 
in this time of darkness, in this time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Lord, you didn't leave them in that darkness. Thank you that this text begins and ends with a word from you. And Lord, we pray that that would be the case in each one of our hearts today. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the one thing that the Grinch hates more than anything? Come on. Noise. Noise. There's one thing I hate. All the noise, 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 noise. If the Grinch were here, he would think that those folks down there in Whoville were living in some quiet, you know, soundproof room. Let me give you something to think about. If you're an average American, you spend seven hours and four minutes a day looking at that little screen that's connected to the Internet. Seven hours and four minutes a day. That's actually less than... The population of South Africa, which averages, according to one statistic I read this week, about 10 hours. But the average American spends over seven hours a day looking at a screen connected to the Internet. I've been around some of you enough to know that that's accurate. I also know that some of you don't even own a smartphone. So if you average that out, it's frightening. Right? I mean, there's some in here who would be zero. I know that's rare, but there are. So just do the math. That same report, by the way, it's a 2023 report. So the numbers says that almost half, 49% of two-year-olds, spend between 30 minutes and two hours a day in some way relating to a smartphone. Two-year-olds. Now, if you're part of Generation Z between 11 and 26 years of age, you're over nine hours. We live in a noisy place. And I don't just mean, you know, audible sounds. I mean digital, cultural. It is noisy, right? Noise, 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 noise. And in the midst of that noise, God still speaks. He still speaks. Now, that amount of time connected to whatever, the Internet or whatever, causes us to not be able to focus, to not be able to really pay much attention to anything very well, right? I mean... That's just the truth. It's hard to focus. It's hard to pay attention. I've been praying this week, and this may be one of the most important messages some of us would ever hear today. That our God still speaks. And that He speaks in a way that can be life-changing individually, corporately, for your family. Our God still speaks. Now, the Bible is filled with instances of that. Some of them are extraordinary. 
Now remember, when we're studying a passage like we are in Samuel, a passage that is um, one that's narrative, if you will, long passages, you have to read the whole chapter to understand what's going on. Understand that lots of times those passages that we read in that in that way, they're not prescriptive for us, they're descriptive. It's important to keep that in mind sometimes. We are not going to find our own burning bush. That's not the way God works. We are not going to, we're not going to have the same experience that Isaiah may have had there when he saw that vision of God in his holy place. Many of us are not going to have the same experience that Saul did when God struck him down by that bright light that day when he was converted. But our God still speaks. He speaks through his word. It can be a very quiet word. And listen, here's the cool thing about what we see today in Samuel. It can be a quiet word that comes while Samuel is just in church doing the things that he's supposed to be doing. He's just doing what he's supposed to be doing. Ministering before the Lord, whatever boring little apprentice duties an apprentice priest did. And God spoke into the darkness. There was still something there that God wanted people to hear. So God is faithful and he is still speaking. And that's what this text shows us. Now the context is important to us. Remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about a, a, a chiasm, that Hebrew literary structure where a text will begin and end with a similar or same point. And those subtexts will work to a place where there's a kind of a highlight. There's a high point in the message, in the text. Well, that's what's happening here in First Samuel chapter 3. It's chiasm. It begins and ends with a word from the Lord. It then has this picture, if you will, of Eli diminishing and getting, getting less relevant. And of Samuel rising up in his relevance. And it all culminates in this word of judgment here in the middle of the chapter. God is doing a work. He's bringing salvation and he's doing it through judgment. Hang on to that thought because that's important for us. The context, spiritually speaking, is one where there is silence and darkness that characterizes the day, but there is still hope. There is still a little flicker going on. All right. Silence is that first word that kind of comes to mind as we see this. Samuel is ministering in the presence of the Lord there. And it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now, again, the idea of a vision there is just an idea of a revelation from God. Okay. It's not necessarily a dream. Samuel doesn't have a dream. He's awake. This idea of a vision is a revelation from God, and it is rare in that day. Remember, this is the day of judges. There is no king, and people are doing what is right in their own eyes. And what we've just seen in chapter 2, where this unnamed prophet come and says, Thus says the Lord, that's really unusual. It's really unusual. And we're going to see, I think, that Eli is in such a place spiritually, not only are his eyes dimming, but so is spiritual awareness. He's not even recognizing that God may be speaking to young Samuel until after three times. So the point is, it's a time where there's silence. 
And you know what? That's a way that God judges. That's a means of God's judgment. The Old Testament prophet Amos says this. Behold, the days are coming. I'm in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, run to and fro, and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So it's a time of silence. It's also a time of darkness. It says that Eli's eyes have failed him. They're growing dim so that he could not see there in verse 2. And again, we have to be careful because everything we see in the Old Testament is not a metaphor. Everything we see in the Old Testament is not necessarily a type that points to something else. I had one Old Testament professor that used to tell me, tell us that Jesus is not behind every single rock in the Old Testament. And that's true. Now, he's the focus. But in this case, the context tells us that there's something going on here beyond just an old man losing his eyesight. The context tells us, the picture tells us here, that Eli... As are his two worthless sons in chapter 2 are a picture of the spiritual climate, if you will, the spiritual uh, awareness of the whole country. His eyes are beginning to grow dim. And so what he does see, if he can see at all, he doesn't see as he should, right? Remember, what did he see when he saw Hannah praying earlier? He saw a drunk woman. What did he see when he saw his two sons blaspheming God? Well, he didn't see it as clearly as he needed to because he didn't do anything to really stop it, as we'll see. So it's, it's a time here where there's, there's dimmed eyes, and it's a metaphor of a dark, dim spiritual climate. But there is a flicker of hope. It says that the lamp in verse 3 of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. What's it talking about there? Well, if we go back to the book of Exodus, and God gives all these specific instructions of how they're to build the tabernacle, how they're to build this tent place of worship, right? You remember that? And there were clear instructions about all the furniture, all the draperies, all the, all the curtains, everything, specific detail. And there was to be what is called today a menorah, right? That seven light, that seven candle fixture that was there to be outside the place where the Holy of Holies was. And the priests were to light that at the end of the day so that it would flicker and burn all night. So this tells us that that lamp has not yet gone out. It's sometime early in the morning, late night. But again, there's a picture here of Eli diminishing. His eyesight's failing. His spiritual awareness is failing. His two sons who are priests are worthless. And yet here's little Samuel right there sleeping someplace in the very place of worship, it says, near the ark. And that candle has not yet gone out. There is still a flicker of hope. And that's significant. Remember last week, and I heard, it was so encouraging to hear some of you commenting on the, just a reminder that that little family of yours being faithful is massively important. And that same little boy or little girl who you dragged to church 
and who you fuss with in the morning about getting breakfast and getting them dressed. Those little children that you bring that you think, man, we were carrying on a conversation earlier this morning back there in the sound booth. I'm not sure I'm up to taking care of 13 three-year-olds out in the nursery. Listen, that's God-sized in its importance. God-sized. And here's little Samuel in church, and he is that flicker of hope. The lamp is still burning. The tent is still standing. And the ark is still where it's supposed to be, which leads us to the second point. The second section here is the call. All right, first is the context. It's dim, it's dark, but there is a flicker of hope, and here's the call. Our God still speaks. God is not silent. And he not only speaks, but he personally intervenes and reveals himself through his word, personally and corporately for his people. So the ark of God, it says there, this is the first mention in verse 3 of the ark. And it's going to be a huge deal over the next three chapters. The ark is going to be front and center over the next two or three chapters here in 1 Samuel. So pay attention to that. But you remember what the ark was, right? Okay, remember the movie, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark? Right? I mean, if let's start there. Noise, 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 right? There's that ark. That ark was critically important. It was central in that place of worship for the people of Israel. It was central in that place of worship. Why is it so big of a deal? Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 25. There I will meet with you. Talking about the ark. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That wooden box covered with gold, covered with those angels, the seraphim wings, that's where God says, I will meet with you there, and from that place I will speak with you. The ark is important, and it's in its place, and God is doing exactly what he would promise to do. And so here we have this process of a call. The Lord calls a Samuel first time. Here I am, he says. And he runs to Eli, thinking Eli has called him. And it happens a second time. The Lord said again, Samuel, in verse 6. And Samuel rose and went to Eli. And I'm thankful. Give this old man credit, okay? His eyes are dimming, but he seems to be very patient. Seems to be very patient. Three times he's woken up. And three times he seems to be very calm and collected and restrained. Maybe he's too old to know the difference. I don't know. But three times this process comes of being called. I'm so thankful that God is like a lot of teachers and, and football coaches I used to have. Right? Hodges, am I going to have to tell you three times? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, you are. Yes. And maybe more. And I'm so thankful that God is that way, right? Huh? Somebody, some of you thick-headed ought to say amen. He is patient. He is patient. Not only does he speak, but he speaks again and again and again. And not only is he just speaking, but he's introducing himself. I think that's what we see going on here. It says there that Samuel did not yet know the Lord... For the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, this is important. The context of a statement, the context of something being said here, helps us understand what it means. 
And this should trigger a thought. Wait a minute, I heard that before, right? It said that those two worthless sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, did not know the Lord. And it says here, doesn't it, that it's the same thing? No, it's not. It's not the same thing. It doesn't say exactly the same thing. And it's important for us to recognize that distinction. It's in, in chapter 2 and verse 12, it says that they did not know the Lord. Here it says Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Because the Lord had not yet revealed himself through his word. And that's a huge distinction. It's important to recognize that. I love what it says that Hophni and Phinehas did not know the Lord. And, and I think it's pretty clear to us that they didn't know the Lord because they didn't want to know him. They did not want to know him. They're moving in this direction that's so contrary to God's direction. And they didn't want to know him. And that's the reason some people, that may be the reason some of you are not hearing from the Lord. You just don't want to. Because you can't stay where you are in your rebellion and in your sin and hear from him in that clear way that you should. You can't do those two things at the same time. I love what Alistair Begg says about this. He says, you cannot defy God and know God simultaneously. You cannot turn your back on the place where God meets with you, namely his cross, and still meet with God. Because he keeps all of his appointments at the same place. That's true. God meets us at the same place, and ultimately it is at the foot of the cross. Samuel did not know the Lord yet because the word had not yet been revealed to him. And he was in the best place in the world for him to know the Lord. Parent, do not grow tired of dragging your kid to church. Because there is something about proximity that matters. And, and here's what I mean by that. And, and some of you have heard this before, but I'm telling you, I, I was in church drug there three times a week. At minimum, whether I wanted to be or not, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then all the other stuff that went on in between. Forced to sing in the choir, literally forced to sing in the choir. That was not the cool thing to do. All right. But that was what you did if you were in my family. What you did if you were in my family is you pulled for the Washington Redskins, the Carolina Tar Heels, and you went to church. Or you did not eat and live in that house. Just I, Those were Glenn's rules. Okay, The first two, I kind of grew to love pretty quickly. The third, no, I just did it because I had to. But I look back now and I see now, I remember now hymns, songs, words of hymns that I hated. And those words just roll out of my heart. I remember now lessons and reminders of Sunday school lessons and biblical truth that was taught to me by patient, faithful teachers. And I didn't care then and didn't think I cared for a long time afterward. But God was planting seeds and doing a work. Parent, you are not your kid's best friend now. Don't try to be. But you are the primary spiritual influencer in their lives. And proximity matters. There is no better place to be than in the place where God meets his people in worship. No place. 
And good will come from it. By God's grace, it will. And so, Samuel's where he needs to be. And he had not yet met the Lord, but God was going to reveal himself to him. And what's so wonderful about this is God takes the initiative. And not only does he take the initiative, but he's persistent. (laughs) Again and again and again. He's persistent there. And here we see this picture of something that is extraordinary in this passage. Because it says that this third time, it says in verse 10, that the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. So here we have what we call a theophany, an appearance of God coming and standing beside Samuel. And again, I don't think this is a dream. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what appearance he took. This is extraordinarily rare. This is the only place in the Old Testament you'll find this verb attributed to the subject of God. And so as we see God come and standing there beside Samuel and speaking his voice twice, like he does in many of the important places where we see him call others, Moses, Moses, twice, that burning bush spoke out to him. It's not unusual for that to happen twice, for him to call that name out twice. But it is extraordinarily rare for God to come and make this appearance there. But he does. And that's significant for us to recognize that God is doing something extraordinary here. Even as he comes and presents himself, if you will, and calls out this young boy. The point here is not that we go seeking these things. Again, this is a narrative. It's not prescriptive. Be careful when you discuss this in life group. This isn't what God does normally. Now, he can do whatever he chooses, right? I mean, he can. He, can. he, he makes himself known through dreams and visions to non-believers all over the world. Pray for Hannah. Pray for those Buddhists to have dreams and visions of Jesus. Because then God will confirm those through his word by his people. That's how he works. So here is this presence of God, and God comes personally to carry out this important work. And I'm so thankful for that picture that we have there. But notice what happens next. As, as, as God comes and gives this, this word, if you will, and he does, that's what he comes. He doesn't, it doesn't say much about any kind of a vision here. It's just a word. And Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. Now, some commentators go, well, is there some significance there that he didn't repeat what Eli told him to repeat? Probably not. I mean, I don't know how old he is at this point in time, but it's probably a pretty awesome thing, right? It's got to be some kind of extraordinarily awesome thing. And he doesn't repeat. He doesn't say the word Lord. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of significance to that necessarily. But God does come, not only does he make a call, place a call on Samuel's life, but there's, there's clarity in this call, there's certainty in this call. Look at the next point in your sermon notes there, the certainty. God comes bringing a sure word that will determine the destiny. It will determine the destiny of people individually and collectively. Behold, God says, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone hears it will tingle. Now, this isn't the itching ears in the New Testament that Paul talks to Timothy about where we're going to make sure what we hear is what we want to hear. That's not the same idea. 
The idea for tingle here is an idea that just kind of blows you away. I've never heard anything like that in my life. It's rocking their world is what God is saying. They're not going to believe what they hear. It's going to be shocking to them. On that day, he says in verse 12, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. The destiny of Eli's family, the destiny of Samuel, the destiny of Israel is all tied up together, God says. And I'm going to do what I said I will do. You can count on it. That's that's the summary. I'm going to do what I said I will do. You can count on it. And he pronounces this powerful word of judgment. I will fulfill all that I've spoken concerning his house. I will punish his house, he says, for the iniquity that he knew. He's talking about Eli here. Because his sons were blaspheming God, he knew they were, and he didn't do anything about it. He did not restrain them. And so God says, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of his house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. And note the two words used here and two verses before, forever. That's a long time. Forever is a long time. They've gone too far. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli have gone too far. How far is too far? That's not up to us to know. I just know that God reveals here they've gone too far. And what was significant about the sin of those two boys and Eli's being aware of it and not doing something to end it? What was the big deal about that? I mean, come on. God is a God of love, right? Why is that so extraordinarily important here? What did it say earlier that these two boys had done as they were carrying out supposedly their responsibilities. What was it that they had done that was such a big deal? It says earlier in chapter 2, verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The very means of forgiveness that God had instituted for His old covenant people is this sacrificial system. And these boys are kicking it down the road as unimportant And something for their own self-gain. The very means of forgiveness that God had instituted, they not only ignored it, but perverted it. And that's why it comes to us in this statement here, there's nothing left that can be done for them. The New Testament equivalent of this is found in the book of Hebrews, if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26 says this, If we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Hophni and Phinehas fit into that category, by the way. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And there in verse 31, Hebrews 10 says, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. They had gone too far. Well, how far is too far for us? 
How far is too far for for you, for me, or for someone else? Again, I think the New Testament is very clear about this. I love what Tim Chester says. Tim's a vicar in a, in a in, in in a good in a good branch of the Church of England in a solid evangelical conservative church. Tim Chester says this. It is not that there are sins which are beyond the scope of the cross. There are no sins too big for the grace of God in the blood of Christ to cover. The point is this, he says. If you despise the cross of Christ, then you reject the only means of salvation. Reject Christ's sacrifice and you have nowhere else to turn. They treated the sacrifice of God, Hophni and Phinehas did, with contempt. And there no longer was a sacrifice for them. Jesus is our sacrifice. There's no sin so dark. There's no place too far that God can't draw us back and forgive us through the blood of Christ. Unless we choose to ignore that cross. To have contempt for it. To dismiss it and make nothing of it. Beautiful picture here. Forever is a long time, yes. But God, even through the judgment pronouncement, is bringing salvation. It is a tough message. And it is a tough message to deliver. Look at verse 13 there. It says that Samuel, I'm sorry, 15. Samuel lay until morning when he opened the doors, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. So Samuel is is got this responsibility there. He's sleeping inside the temple. His responsibility, I think, is to open the doors in the morning, close the doors at night. He's just serving as an apprentice priest. He lay there until morning. I think he's had a long, sleepless night. And he opened the doors to the house of the Lord. He unlocks the doors. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Can you identify with that? Yeah, nobody likes to be the bearer of bad news. You know, nobody does. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. I love the fact that there is clearly a connection here. There is a deep, I believe, a deep relationship between Samuel and Eli. Over the years, we're not sure how many years this is, there has developed in there, I believe, in Eli. What he sees in Samuel is what he wishes he would have seen in Hophni and Phinehas. He seems to have brought this young boy in and just there's an affection there. I believe that. And he says, and he he keeps calling to him, referring to him as my son. Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? (laughs) He knows who he is. He and Eli together understand. I mean, Samuel and Eli knows who he is. Do not hide it from me. And then he makes this pledge, if you will, or this its a very common colloquial way of just saying, you need to tell me the truth. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of that that he told you. And we'll see that repeated again. It's just this, you need to tell me the truth. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. There it is. It's a hard message. It's a tough message to deliver. And Samuel has just done his first act as an official prophet. Thus says the Lord, and thus says Samuel. That's what real prophets do. 
God calls, God extends, God gives the message, and the prophet speaks it. And young Samuel proclaims that. Told him everything that the Lord had told him. Hid nothing from him. It is the Lord let him do what seems good to him, is Eli's reply. I'm not sure what to make of that. I really don't know. Is it humble submission? Or is it just callous resignation? I've, I've, I've thought about that this week. Susan and I had this conversation. Susan tends to lean toward the second. It's just calloused resignation. And given the context, how unimportant it seemed to Eli what Hophni and Phinehas were doing, how he seemed to disregard the seriousness of their sin, maybe that is the case. Maybe it's just, maybe he's like Hezekiah was in the book of Isaiah in chapter 39, where the prophet came and spoke a just a condemning, powerful message of judgment. And what was Hezekiah's response? The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, this is what he's thinking to himself, there will be peace and security in my days. What Hezekiah is thinking is, well, let God do whatever he wants to do because it's not going to happen until after I die. Well, is that the way Samuel, is that the way Samuel's words kind of echoed off of Eli? Or is Eli instead given a humble submission to what God had said? Like, you know what? God is God, and what he does is more important than anything that happens to me or my family. Is that what he's saying? I don't know. You can, we can talk about it. I'd love that conversation. But that's his response. And so here God comes and speaks this word of judgment. And through his word, he directs not only Samuel's life and what's going to happen in Samuel's life, but he redirects, if you will, Eli's life. And we're going to see that unfold over the next three chapters. Listen, this is not really one of the application points, but anytime we take God's message out to the culture around us, it's going to be hard to do. It's not always going to be popular. The call to repent is never easy. And then the chapter ends with this picture of continuation. God will continue to speak. There's been a reversal of the situation in the country, in the culture, there among Israel. It says Samuel grew. This is a growing boy, all right? So this is the third or fourth time that we've seen Samuel growing. But I think here it's talking about his spiritual growth. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. That's incredible. There hadn't even been any words. But now, these words not only will come, they will not fail. And they will, fa- they will not fail throughout the country. From Dan to Beersheba is from the furthest northern point of the country down to the furthest southern point. So countrywide, nationwide, throughout all of Israel... They will know that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Samuel grew in the presence of God. He was delivering the word of God. And the word of God was going to accomplish the purposes for which God sent it. Right? Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah? And that's what we see being described here. This is a picture of what Samuel's ministry will be from then on. It will not be easy. 
But he will be faithful. And God will be faithful to his word. And so this, this revelation here at the end of this chapter that God's word is coming again, that it is being spoken by God to his prophet, by his prophet to his people, and that word will not fail. What a beautiful picture this is. And it should remind us and point us clearly to Jesus. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says in the beginning in there in Hebrews chapter 1? Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. What a beautiful promise. It's the same thing that Moses said in the book of Acts. They were quoting Moses in the book of Acts. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Him you shall listen to. And whatever he tells you to do. That's what God spoke out of the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Let me give you some points of application. I'll post these, but just... Jot these down in your sermon notes, okay? Listen as we kind of wrap this up again. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful narrative account for us, but there are some clear points of application, I believe, here. Just as we see God announcing, calling, and establishing His prophet, God has established His primary prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus that God's first and foremost means of grace comes, and that's His Word. His Word. No one is saved apart from it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 10. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And the way you hear him and see him is through the word. The scriptures are indispensable as our means of salvation. We sang this earlier. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? No one else has the word of life. Peter recognized that in John 6. Not only did Peter recognize that the words of Jesus were the words of life, he recognized that the words of Jesus were more important even than the visions of Jesus that Peter saw. Because he says later on in 2 Peter, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed Talking about the vision of Jesus that he saw on the mountaintop. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The life of Christ, the light of Christ, you need it in your life this morning. And the only way you're going to find it is through the word. You've heard that this morning even as I've preached. Jesus came that you'd have life and have it abundantly. And it is in Him and through Him that you see the revelation of God. There is no sin that any of you have committed that has removed you so far away from God that the grace of God cannot reach you through the blood of Christ. You've heard that now. And by faith, if you'll respond to it and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you'll see this word begin to come to fruit in your life. You'll see that. You need God, and we find him through his word. Secondly, a second point of application is the first mark of genuine discipleship. The first mark of being a genuine disciple of Christ is seeking, listening, and abiding in the word. There is no assurance apart from it. 
Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Now, notice he does not say you will be if you abide in my word. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes through the word of Christ. By faith, we trust his word. We put our faith in Jesus. And he begins to do a work in those who are his. We receive him. We rest in him as our Savior. But then his spirit works in us to bring us into Christ more deeply and more deeply and more deeply through the word. John Calvin said this. He says, God distinguishes his followers from hypocrites by this mark. That they who falsely boasted of faith give way as soon as they've entered into the course. Or at least in the middle of it. Believers persevere constantly to the end. Those who persevere to the end are those who are abiding in the word. I haven't put this up, but I will. John Piper, and I've appreciated this over the years so much. This is some, Piper calls these his IOUs. And this is how he studies the word every day. This is how he goes to the Lord through the word and hears from the Lord through the word. He calls it his IOUs. Incline. Open, unite, satisfy. I-O-U's. Incline. From Psalm 119.36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. O, open. Open my eyes to see wonderful things. Psalm 119.18. U, unite. Unite my heart to fear your name. From Psalm 86. And satisfy. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. From Psalm 90. You pray those four simple prayers as you come to God through his word and you'll hear from him. Incline, open, unite, satisfy. I did put up an article by Zane Pratt. Zane's a cool guy. Zane is one of the vice presidents of the IMB. He was, he was over Central Asia when we had a family there in Afghanistan. Zane Pratt wrote a little article talking about the, the marks of discipleship. And he said, it is by the word of the Lord. Listen to this, church. It is by the word of the Lord that God transforms first our hearts, then he transforms our mind, then our will, then our affections, then our relationships, and then our purpose. The mark of a true disciple is abiding in the word. Third application. Going and saying what God has called us to say is not easy. We see that in Samuel. It's not easy. We don't have a prosperity gospel to share. We don't have a nationalistic gospel to share. It's the message of salvation through Christ. And that message has two sides. It has two sides. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's side A. Side B comes in the next two verses that you read there in John. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The gospel has two sides. And we're called to share both. And that's never, the, the call to repentance is never easy. And listen, if we don't cringe in some way to that responsibility, there's something wrong with us. Right? The message of judgment via salvation, I mean salvation via judgment, is a hard message to share. But that's the good news of the cross. That's why that thing hangs up there. Is that the judgment we should fear for ourselves and for others has been taken by Jesus. 
And that's the good news we share. And then finally, one last application. And this is, I know I'm probably going to sound like an old curmudgeon when I say this. And, and yeah, maybe it's a stretch in some way, but I do think it's important for us to recognize here. While we're thinking about marks of identity, transform mind, can I just say to you that if you will open this book and go to the Lord through it, instead of digitally, you will not be as distracted. Can I just say that the marks of a contemporary Christian would be a radical thing if they saw us carrying our Bible instead of our phone all the time. And I just say that because I love you as your pastor. But you need to be in this more than you need to be in that dadgum telephone. Because, yes, I have a Bible app and I use it. But if I don't put that thing on airplane mode, what's going to happen as I get to verse 4? Ding, ding, ding. So, yeah, you 11-year-old to 22-year-olds, nine hours a day on your phone, average, you need to be in the Word, and you need to be in the printed, published, bound Word. Just take this old man's word for it. Okay? Otherwise, you're distracted, you're hindered, and you are not focused. Just a thought. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you still speak. And I pray that even through the foolishness of preaching, you'll speak and continue to speak this word to us. God, thank you that you continue to meet Samuel there at Shiloh through your word. Thank you for meeting us. Thank you for the beautiful, immeasurably important gift of your printed word. There are people throughout this globe who don't have it, who hunger for it, who celebrate like they've just won a billion dollars when they have a copy of the Bible. God, restore to your people the joy of your salvation and do that, Lord, through your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.